Hello, I'm Chris Neeland, host of a new podcast, Cult Brand Secrets, brought to you by The Gathering and Evergreen Podcasts. The Gathering is a Forbes top-rated business summit and a masterclass for brand and business leaders looking to reap the benefits of cult-like adoration. Each year, The Gathering brings together disruptors from around the globe to learn from and to celebrate the leaders behind iconic brands like Marvel, Skittles, Beats by Dre, Yeti, and the Dallas Cowboys. For the first time ever, this podcast will give you access to some of the exclusive business leader learnings from the gathering's past events. You're in for a treat today, folks, because Tom Herps's presentation at the Gathering 2019 ranks among one of my top 10 all-time favorite presentations. I'd like you to listen to Tom speak, and I want you to ask yourself, how much do you really believe in what he's saying? You should use Tom's remarks as sort of a barometer to gauge your own passion and your own level of enthusiasm for cult branding, because if you believe most of what he's saying is ridiculous or largely irrelevant for how brands should go to market or engage customers, then you should spend very little time or money in the pursuit of creating a cult brand. You just don't get it. On the other hand, if you get goosebumps listening to him talk and wish that you could devote your talent and all your time and everything your company does to aspiring to achieve the types of things that North Face is doing, then you'll not only get a ton of great advice from Tom, but this entire Gathering podcast series should become part of your daily professional development and you should aggressively pursue the development of a cult brand. Tom is gonna to talk about a very important distinction and that is the difference between building a business versus building a brand. As a business, the North Face is wildly successful at manufacturing and selling products expertly designed to help people thrive in extremely cold weather. But as a brand, North Face was dangerously close to losing its way. As it got bigger, it was becoming less beloved. In pursuit of greater profits, they were losing touch with the people that made their company great, both their best customers and the staff whose buy-in is so critical. And that's when Tom came in to help save the day. And as you'll soon discover, Tom is a very humble guy. He's soft-spoken. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He's atypical from the loud and obnoxious personalities that dominate our industry, you know, present company included. He counsels us during his presentation to create brands that are more vulnerable, more approachable, and more lovable, which is perfectly appropriate because that's exactly who Tom is. Enjoy. I'm Tom. Good to meet you. Really excited to be here at the gathering this year and want to just sort of open by saying thank you to um, the team that put this together, all of the other speakers that have been up on stage and talking to us. It's super cool to just to see so many different points of view and so many smart people in one place. It's also, I feel fortunate that so many of our brand's friends are here. Our friends at Yeti, some are here. Our friends over at Fader are, are giving another speech now. I'm glad you picked this room instead of them. 
friends from Beats are here, our partner uh, sister brand Vans are here. So it's, it's awesome to be in this company. When I started thinking about what I wanted to talk about today, the good folks at the gathering actually asked me to start just to tell a little bit about myself. So I'm gonna take a few minutes to tell you a little bit about my story and then get into a bit of what it means to us at the North Face to be considered a cult brand and how in some ways it was a little surprising for us to be given that distinction. So let me start with myself. I'm the youngest of three boys. I grew up in Chicago. I'm actually a big believer in birth order as a, sort of a destiny of, of kind of how you achieve things in life. And this is a, the perfect example for me. This is my oldest brother in the middle, straight A student. Dad says, smile for the camera. He smiles for the camera. My middle brother on the left, sort of the Jan Brady, staring out into space, doesn't even realize, you know, completely left out. And then I'm the little chub ball on the right there. And, you know, a couple things that I would point out about this. You see both my brothers have matching shirts and I clearly have a hand-me-down. As the youngest of three, that was actually a big part of, of my life and, and what formed me. I never got the formal training that maybe my brothers did. By the time things got to me, it was always sort of a hand-me-down. It was always sort of a moment where my parents said, he'll figure it out, he'll learn by observing. And a lot of my life actually has been formed by learning from observation. I never went to business school. I went to college uh, as an English major, thinking that I would be a writer, making up my own story in the moment. And I was always from a very young age obsessed with stories and storytelling as a way to explain the world, as a way to find community and fit into places, and as a way to communicate ideas to other people. So, you know, as I said, that, that took me on a path of, of wanting to become a writer. I was a terrible writer. I still am. You can ask anyone on my creative team when I lob ideas for lines at them. Um, and coming out of college with a degree in English literature, there wasn't much to do that really fit that. And I ended up in the world of advertising because I thought that that would be a great place to tell stories. My first job was as a research analyst, which is pretty much the bottom rung of, of any ladder. And I landed at, a, at an advertising agency in Chicago where I got the opportunity right off the bat to work for these two campaigns, Pork the Other White Meat and the Milk Mustache campaign. Now, as a young Jewish kid, it's not a real kosher combination. <laughs> Had some explaining to do to my parents, but it was a pretty immediate lesson, again, in the power of storytelling. These are two campaigns that they're selling, pork and milk. Could anything be more boring than, you know, a slab of meat and some cow juice? Uh, I don't think so, but somehow these brands, through storytelling, managed to reach a lot of people. And in many ways, it sort of opened my eyes to the power of brands, big brands with massive reach to start to change perception in culture. And that was something that was really exciting to me. So I started looking around for places and brands that 
were interesting to me that I could help tell their stories. And I had the good fortune of landing at a company called Diageo. Diageo is one of those companies that not a lot of people have heard of, but you've heard of all of our brands, all of their brands. They own Johnny Walker, Tanqueray, Guinness, Smirnoff, Kettle One, the list goes on. While I was there, I landed for a long time on a brand called Captain Morgan. This was my life for a while. We went around trying to tell the story of, of a pirate. And it was awesome. Huge brand, lots of consumer interest, really big reach, great opportunities. But after doing this for a while, it sort of felt like something was missing in my life. And I had these amazing platforms, and I started questioning whether or not I was spending my time in the right way. Our job is to change perception, is to start conversations, is to have meaningful interactions with people. And I started to take that really personally and think about what did I want to do with that opportunity? Did I want people to drink more rum or did I want to do something more than that? And so when the North Face called me, immediately really sparked my interest. Not only because I love the outdoors, although I'm not a hardcore ski mountaineer or climber. I, I do ski, I do hike, but because the brand seemed to have a lot of deep meaning and it was attached to really important things in the world. It's attached to climate change and what was going on there. It was attached to the spirit of exploration and what that can do for humanity. So when they called, I was honored. I started to learn more about the brand itself. The first North Face store, which opened in the North Beach neighborhood of San Francisco in 1966. The Grateful Dead played at the opening. There were Hell's Angels working the door. And the more that I learned about this brand, the more excited I was by the deep, rich history and incredible stories it has. This is Buckminster Fuller, who helped us reinvent the tent, which was actually originally a design to solve the world's homeless crisis because the geodesic dome is so cheap and repeatable. So as I got into this, it was an amazing fit for me personally and something that I really felt like I could sink my teeth into. But at the same time, I have to say that I didn't necessarily think about it as a cult brand. And when I got the call and said, hey, you've been nominated for a cult award, I was pleased. But also there was a part of me that said, have we come far enough to be a cult brand? Certainly we were born originally as a cult brand, dirtbag climbers in San Francisco who wanted to get off the grid. But Due mostly to the success of the business, we had become really big. And when I joined and, and we started talking to consumers, you know, what we learned is that you see the North Face on everyone. When it's cold out, you see them. When you're going to get your coffee, you see them. When you're walking your dog, you see them. And you see it everywhere, but consumers were telling us one really clear thing. I'm not everyone. And so we had this brand that had massive scale, had these deep nuggets of meaning, but was sort of tortured by its own success. 
it had become so big that it had almost become meaningless. And we needed to find ways to drive meaning and purpose back into what became this big behemoth. Now, I think that part of what drove this challenge was the size of the brand. Certainly though, we were not the only brand going through this. And I would actually make an argument that the biggest trend that's happening in consumer culture and brand culture today is the changing notion of the value of being big. So it used to be that big was great, not that long ago, maybe 15 or 20 years ago, big was great. If you were big, that meant that you worked really well and people could trust you. It meant you were super consistent and everyone knew exactly what they were gonna get from you. It meant quality, that the product that was gonna be delivered was of a high quality. But in almost every category, that's changed. And what you see are smaller brands popping up that are more personal, connecting in different ways, expressing themselves through design and through experiences that are more human and choice, overwhelming consistency. Lots of big brands are struggling with this. I've worked on a lot of them and it's something that's a big challenge. To kind of bring this point home, if you think about the media landscape as an example, Friends. Back in the day, Friends was the highest rated show on TV. And weekly in the US, about 40 million people would tune in to watch the live telecast of Friends. 40 million people, okay? That is the same number of subscribers of Netflix. So every show on Netflix is watched by 40 million people. That's a really good example to me of how consumers are changing choice and how big behemoths are sort of losing value for people. And the challenge for brands like that, what's somewhat interesting about this as a total aside, it doesn't really have much of what I'm talking about. What's the number two watched show on Netflix? Friends. I don't know why. There's something about that show people just love. Ross, Monica, I don't know. So this was sort of the challenge that we faced as we looked at how do we take control again of our cultness? How do we tap into that? And the question that we basically posed to ourselves is how can we be a friendly giant? How can we use our scale which we had, our size, our reach, but not like bludgeon people over the head with what our brand stands for and still be vulnerable and approachable and lovable. We started looking at that question and this kind of gets me to the central theme of what I wanted to talk to you about today. There's one sort of idea that has driven everything that we've done since that point and I want to talk a little bit about it. Be a fucking human is honestly the thing that as an individual, as a team, once as an organization, it's something that we go back to a lot. And I want to talk a little bit about what that means for us and how we approached it. 
But it's something that I feel like, again, you know, this is a big stage and there's a lot of people in the room. Today, for me, if, if we can walk out of here and everyone in this room feels like something I'm going to take with me is I'm going to remember that I'm just a human. I'm talking to humans. I'm working with humans. And that sense of empathy and love and understanding is something I'm going to take with me. I'll feel like this has been a, a massive success for me. So what does be a fucking human mean? For the North Face, this is probably, if I asked you to close your eyes and picture an image of the North Face, this is probably what most of you would think of. It's a white guy high up on some mountain in the freezing cold doing something remarkable. And that image got us to where we are today. And it's something that will always be a part of our brand in terms of the remarkability of what our athletes can do and what our products are designed for. But it also became super limiting to us because in many ways, this is a manifestation of the grandiosity that I was talking about before. It's really hard to access it, even though it's aspirational, you don't necessarily see yourself in it. Quite literally, most of the population didn't see themselves in this because that person didn't look like the population or act like the population. And it really limited us to this idea that what we do is sell stuff for super cold weather. When at our heart, we knew that we were much more than that. At our heart, we knew that we were a brand of exploration. And exploration is something that lives in all of us. It's a mindset. It's driven by curiosity and courage. It leads to a desire to understand the world better, to connect with people better, to learn and grow. And we needed to find a way to shift the brand from just being really good cold weather gear to being a more meaningful brand that tapped into that spirit of exploration. And we started to pose that question to ourselves. What right do we have to enter a conversation around this idea of exploration? I strongly believe as a marketer that we're in the job of creating conversations. When we talk about KPIs, when I talk about KPIs for my team who are sitting over there, hi team, um, I hold them to conversation KPIs. Are people talking about us? Because if we're not doing things that are true to us, that people will talk about, then we're just you know, yelling into the abyss. We have to do things that people notice. And so we started looking around for what conversations were happening in culture that we could join. And there was one that we kept coming back to. Build that wall, 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 build that wall. Uh, it's like nauseating, I have to stop it. <laughs> so importantly, we didn't look at the conversation that was happening around walls and culture as a political conversation. We looked about it as a values conversation that was important to us. This is a picture of Yosemite, which is kind of our spiritual home. That's Half Dome. That's our logo, which is a artistic interpretation of Half Dome. So our brand quite literally is about 
a wall. And we've been climbing walls since the day we were born in 1966. We see walls not as a way to divide people, to stop people from moving, but we see walls as ways to bring people together. They're places that you can challenge yourself to do more than you've done before. They're places where you can find community. They're places where you can learn and grow and understand those metaphorical walls in your life that all of us are facing. So with this, we launched a campaign that's called Walls Are Meant for Climbing, which is now in its third year. It was a campaign that put that idea around the, the conversation in walls and what walls mean and really trying to change the narrative around that. This campaign, importantly, was done in partnership with an external agency, but was really done internally by our team. We were given an idea and the team took it and ran with it. There's been a lot of talk this week about internal culture and what that means. This, I think this has been one of the most important rallying points for our culture at the North Face to really find itself again. Because this speaks to our core values, it speaks to where we came from, and everyone on our campus and in our stores got behind it in a big way. And importantly, there were some people who said, you know what, this isn't the brand for me. And they left. And we're cool with that. So this brand was really about trying to change the conversation about walls and culture and drive inclusivity into that conversation. I'm gonna play a quick film that brings us to life. Being really far away from home is hard. There are moments when I'm in the mountains and I think, what did I do to deserve this? I'm so privileged. Where I'm from, there are no mountains, no trails, and no walls. Only walls society has put up. I know that what I do doesn't often translate to my family or my community, but I climb for them. I climb because I believe that there are no walls high enough to keep us chained. <sighs> this is from our brown girls from the hood. The ones who stand between two worlds, who learn to take pride in where they're from, never wanting to just look beyond these walls, rather build within and resist, rebuild the hoods they left us in. This is for my bookworms, who, like me, found solace in her books, lost in worlds that seemed so distant. Mastering words on the low, shamed for her diction, my tongue twisted in code switch, never wanting to sound too ghetto or too white. This is for my chingonas, who learned everything about survival from their people, yet tried so hard to hide their roots. My brown girl, be proud of where you come from. Resilience uprooted you into a powerful force. This is for my brown girls from the hood, who worked their way into spaces that were never created for them, who are loud and intense, who found their voice after years of being told they didn't matter, whose passion means survival. This is for my brown girls from the hood, who are just trying to free the people. So this process for us was one, again, of just being more human of realizing that there are personal stories to tell, of tapping into the communities that surrounded us. That's uh, Montserrat, she's one of our climbers, a uh, young Hispanic woman. And we felt that 
you know, not acting as a corporation, but acting as a, just a group of people. These were stories that we wanted to tell. These were stories of people that we wanted to tell, and we wanted to tell them in very human, very accessible ways. We also had some big media around this with some interesting media placements at times. This was the Sunday Review. But more than the media, it was really the community that drove this. And, and a big part of being a human is recognizing and serving the communities that you live in. As part of this campaign, we have worked with the Trust for Public Lands to build climbing walls in underserved communities around the US. This is our first wall that was launched in Denver last week. Uh, the community turned out in force. These are kids who literally live in view of the mountains in Denver, but have never been there because their parents can't afford the gas to get there. And so we helped to build a park with real climbing walls in them. We're doing this in a bunch of other US cities. We also activated our community through what we call Global Climbing Day. And this was a day where we worked with partner gyms. I think it was across 12 countries, US, here in Canada, Mexico, several South American countries, England, Germany, Japan. And we essentially said, we want everyone to come and, and understand what the community of climbing is about and to change that narrative around walls. Uh, in a single day last year, on August 18th, we got about 60,000 people out to gyms in one day to experience climbing, many of them for the first time. Again, you know, these are the types of things as marketers, as a team, that we look at and we feel better about. We feel great about. And it's making a difference. It's made a difference for the perception of our brand. It makes a difference for the products that we make and sell. Um, for the first time, we ran campaigns in several different languages. We had a product collection that sold out in minutes. These all say walls are meant for climbing in different languages. So it was a true moment of acting like a community of individuals, of just being more human. And it felt fucking great. It felt great. So what does this have to do with the John Carpenter, Rowdy Rowdy Piper film, They Live? from 1988. Great movie, if you haven't seen it. This movie's known for a couple things. It's known for an extended, ridiculous fight scene. It's known for one of the best movie quotes of all time. I came here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> but it's also known for its plot. Its plot is aliens were taking over the Earth, and only Rowdy Roddy Piper had the glasses to see who was actually an alien that looked like a human. And I bring this up because I think part of being and acting more human in your work is getting rid of this notion of they. So a lot of times throughout my career, I've heard people on my teams, I've probably done it myself, say, we can't do that because they don't want us to. They won't approve it. They won't let us. And one of the things I'm here to say today is that there is no they. They is a science fiction thing. The they is you. If you want to make change, you have to make change. You can't wait for your executives to tell you it's time or assume that you don't have the privilege to do it. 
a, a brand, a company is made up of humans. It's made up of individuals. Own that. Take that and know that you can make that change. Tell people that you're all out of bubble gum and you're here to kick ass and kick ass. That at its heart is what I think acting like a human at work is all about. And this came to sharp focus for us in the middle of last year. In the middle of last year, it's been a while and I'm still crying. We lost two members of our team. Um, <clears throat> on the left is Landon Bassett, who uh, had a short fight with cancer. And on the right is Ann Kerchik, who actually lost a longer battle to cancer. Both Landon and Ann were in many ways the spiritual hub of our team. Landon ran all of our content and social media. He was a true outdoorsman to the core. He could have been a professional skier if he chose that path. He was a principled motherfucker who stuck to his guns. And Anne was literally a legend in our industry. She had been with the brand for 30 plus years. She was a walking encyclopedia of the brand. She has done more for women in our industry than probably any individual in the outdoor industry. She invented the idea of professional athletes in the outdoor. If any of you have seen Free Solo, if you haven't seen Free Solo, go see it because it's an amazing movie. If you have seen it, you'll see her name. The, the film is dedicated to her as she sort of helped discover Alex Honnold and Jimmy Chin. So, you know, ha had I gone to business school, I'm pretty sure there wasn't a class that told you what to do when you lose two members of your team in three months. And I, I did not know what to do at all. I had no idea. And the only thing I could say to myself to get through this and hopefully help the team get through it is just be a fucking human about it. Realize that everyone is going through this as a person in their own way. And that the only thing that's gonna get us through this is by communicating a lot, having empathy for people's situations, listening, asking what we should do. And in no way am I up here to say, man, I handled this great. It was a huge learning experience for me. I cried in front of my team every day for a few months, which I hadn't done since ever, maybe. But it, it's moments like that for me that bring into focus everything else that we're talking about. It's a moment like that that just reminds you that we are all part of this community and we have an amazing opportunity with the things that we work on to make a real difference in the world. I think in the last talk, we mentioned that sort of brands are the new religion. I kind of believe that. And I believe that with the gift of the platforms and the brands that we work on, we can make a real difference. And I started to sum that up a little bit internally in this shift. We all probably get asked about ROI, how far our money's going, what effect is it having? I've started to talk about ROE, which is return on emotion. I think the more emotion and the more of yourself that you pour into it, the more that you're going to get out of it. So that's sort of my spiel. I would encourage you all to hopefully take something with this and open your heart to 
the people you work with, communities that you're serving, and the power, I mean, the collective power in this room of the brands and the reach that we have is significant. So thank you very much. Thank you. One of the things we do here for those that are staying for the gala is we honor brands like North Face, but it's dudes like this that lead the brands that we're here to honor. And uh, thank you for being so real with us because I think we all need to be inspired by that. And um, let's talk about Tim, your host, was telling me in a book, just a side stage there about how to lead when you're not in charge. And I've, I know some of the people out here that are CEOs or brand leaders or mid-level marketers, and they have the right idea, but it very rarely gets approved. You know, it's easy to talk about brand-driven companies, but how do you get there? Like, what would what, be some tips for some people here on both sides? Giving the idea and getting it through, and then for the leaders, accepting it. I think it's about context. So the most important thing for landing any idea is creating the context for that idea to be accepted and understood. And probably the thing that I observe most with people who are super excited about an idea is they come in hard, idea-led, and like, all right, this is the answer. And a lot of times my response is, well, what's the question? What are we trying to solve? What is the context for this idea and how it lands? And I think that it's the responsibility of both sides. I think it's the responsibility of someone leading a team to set that context for the team and say, you know, these are the big things we're going after. This is the situation we find ourselves in. These are the variables that we might need to deal with. Therefore, I want you to bring the ideas that solve that. And on the other side, I think when, you know, people are trying to, to sell ideas through an organization or to land them, you know, with the end audience, there's a bit of stepping back and I, I kind of go back to that storytelling thing. You have to set the context and write that first chapter so people know, or give the book a title at least, so people know what they're about to get into before they can receive the idea. And at North Face, when you come, you're obviously, before there was influencer marketing, you guys were doing it. When you come with these content-driven messages, like you have commercials, but a lot of your stuff is mid-form or long-form. And Chris talked about Lego, getting that $65 million check when they're sales are tanking. You've been in those boardrooms. How do you continue to go to your boss or your people you need to answer to and say, we need to continue on the storytelling? Because it's, like you said, re return on emotion. I love that. I resonate with that. But the reality is a lot of people aren't brave enough. Like, How do you continue to push that narrative? Yeah, to some degree, I think we're fortunate that my team and myself, we work for a brand that sort of gets it. And part of that is going back to the initial keynote around purpose, part of that is everyone that's in the boardroom is aligned to our purpose. Uh, our purpose being loosely based around the power of exploration to move the world forward. And so we've done a lot of groundwork with that team to say, hey, look, we need to land the emotional resonance of exploration and find that right balance. That doesn't mean that we're free from the responsibilities of selling a lot of product. In any given season, 
the team is working on 35 to 50 product stories. And those all need to land too, because that's what, you know, that's what pays the bills. So I, I think a large part of it is laying the groundwork with the people in that room to say, hey, this is what we're trying to get after. And keeping that alive conversation so you don't let yourself swing too far in a in one direction or the other, quite frankly. It's interesting as I felt, we got to know each other before the gathering a couple months before. And I see even how you answered that is just authentic. And there's people in the, in the room here that follow your career and, and watch you and you're clearly an influential marketer, but you're just a good dude. And you're a, a, a cool dad. I, I, I see that. I, I, I know you're not perfect. No one is. Let's get human for a minute and not talk about business, but how does business life bleed into your life and how do you manage that because i've heard you talk about your kids i see your family here you have a pretty uh, powerful position how do you balance those things and keep it together you know i think a part of that journey for me has been so i'm i'm really bad at separating life and work I'll, let me put that up front but i'm not sure that there is such a thing as life work separation for everyone you spend i don't know what 60 to 70% of your waking hours at work. So that by definition is your life. I think the important thing is that you find meaning in that in some way. I've been really lucky in my career to work for companies who invested in my development. I've had coaches, I had like a shrink and that's sort of helped me think a little bit about my personal purpose. And what I learned quickly is that my personal purpose is the same at work as it is at home. I encourage people strongly not to have like a home self and a work self. I think it's a waste of energy. And it probably means that you're not bringing your best self to one of those situations. So I think as much as people in this room are probably thinking about their brand and the purpose of their brand, they should be thinking about themselves and, the, and their purpose. We'll wrap up with this one. You tell people about Alex. For me, it was the most famous thing that I associate with the brand, but that's a pretty risky thing no matter which way you slice it. So can you yeah. let people know? So Alex Honnold is one of the North Face team climbers. He is the preeminent free solo climber in the world. What it means to free solo is you climb walls, cliffs without any ropes or any protection. So he straps on his shoes. He tends to wear this cut off pair of pants that we would like him to wear something nicer, but he always chooses to wear that and a red North Face shirt. And he, a couple summers ago, free soloed El Capitan in Yosemite, which is approximately a 3000 foot cliff. For climbers, it's the most famous wall in the world. And he, in about three hours or just under four hours actually, uh, walked up to the wall, put his hand on it and climbed up it. The story of his climb and him as a half robot, half human <laughs> was documented by another one of our climbers, Jimmy Chin, who's also a filmmaker. They made a movie called Free Solo, which is uh, nominated for best documentary. And it was one of those moments as a brand that we just had to, we had to tread really carefully. Um, there aren't many instances where your brand literally has a life or death situation. Yeah, I always say to my team, hey, listen, no one dies in marketing, yeah. go home. Yeah. And when I heard this, I'm like, yeah, someone can die. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was actually interesting. I'm looking over at Jess, who will probably remember this, but he took two attempts at it. The first attempt, he got up a 
several hundred feet and decided he was done. But we got a call from the, the Yosemite Valley saying, okay, Alex is on the wall. And we all huddled in a room and Anne and Landon, who I was worse up on the screen before, the two of them actually got in this heated debate about what we should do with this and how we should serve this opportunity best. And saying, we have to be there for Alex. Like we're his teammate, we're his sponsor. And Landon saying, the best way for us to be there is just to keep our distance. We don't want to put any undue pressure on him. It was a really unique and interesting kind of marketing moment. It's nothing that I've experienced before. In the end, we ended up sort of keeping our distance, which is, I think, the right, the right call. And he ended up thankfully being successful. And it's uh, compelling and remarkable. And <laughs> I have goosebumps thinking about it. Well, I watched a little bit of it. I can't watch more, but it was amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. You're a great dude. Come up and say hi to him as he walks around. An incredible human. Let's give him a hand. Uh, Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily. You know, aside from all the advice on how to build a cult brand, I personally took away something even more profound from Tom's remarks. And that deals with what do I want to do with my superpowers? Each of us has some unique gift or talent, and we need to each decide how best to deploy it. Do we want to use our powers to create some big bank balance in our personal account, or create a company that improves the lives of its customers and staff, or even make the world a better place? I love how Tom came to the realization that if he excelled in his previous role, what would happen is that he would get more people to drink more rum. And he found that that would be a bit of a shallow existence. Certainly to each their own, but I love how Tom did some soul searching and decided to use his powers to achieve a greater purpose. In aligning himself with the North Face, he could assist with macro issues that challenge things like climate change and even homelessness. And as he shared, he can have values-based campaigns around building walls and helping people climb over them. I love how he explained that as their brand started to become more clear about what it stood for, it inevitably turned some people off, but it also attracted others to it. I also love how Tom mentioned that if the job description of a marketer is to create conversation and to evoke emotion, then we should be really careful about deciding who we work for because we want to find joy in the conversations that we're creating. Life is too short to spend 60 or 70% of our waking hours on interactions that we don't really want to have. So I hope that we all take Tom's advice and stop just chasing big. Big is meaningless. Instead, let's chase impact and do more for humanity and to make the world a better place for all. Once again, this is your host, Chris Neeland. 
and you've been listening to Cult Brand Secrets, where we explore the great speakers and insights shared at the gathering, a Forbes top-rated business summit. Learn more about the gathering at cultgathering.com. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please rate and review us on your podcast app. It really helps. Cult Brand Secrets is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Learn more about our podcasts at evergreenpodcast.com. Special thanks to Connor Standish and Laura Winter for their assistance in making this podcast possible. Also, I'd like to thank our producer and audio engineer, William Pritz, as well as executive producers, David Moss and Bridget Coyne. I'm your host, Chris Nealon. Thanks for listening. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzoir, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you wanna learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.